Hey, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. You can turn there with me. Luke chapter 1. We started a, a series in Luke uh, just this last week. Uh, this is a great time to start the book of Luke, as you might know, because it is the Christmas season. And uh, the beginning of Luke is obviously, uh, you know, the Christmas story. And so we're excited to be doing that. So uh, I'm going to read the passage for you, and then we'll just get cracking on this. Um, and uh, you know what? I'm going to read from verse 1. Instead of verse 5, I'm going to read from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through verse 25, just to kind of give us context. So it says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning, uh, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So this is Luke. Uh, he is a gospel writer. He's not an apostle. Uh, he's not even an eyewitness, but he knows eyewitnesses, and he's talked to them, and he's read their transcripts, and he's, read, he's done all kinds of historical uh, digging, investigating, and he's writing to somebody that he knows named Theophilus. Sounds like a uh, uh, a high up official in some capacity and he's already taught Theophilus some things Theophilus may be a Christian he may not be we're not sure entirely but he wants him to have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught so the first thing that we need to understand is that this is a letter um, or a, a book uh, that's been written to a friend and, and he's saying I want you to understand what actually took place here so this is to a person named Theophilus now let's get into our passage in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth, Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God... When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and even from his mother's, uh, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn uh, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom, uh, wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, 
You'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be f fulfilled in their time. Wouldn't you love to say that to your kids? Like, you oh, you don't believe me? All right, well, you will be silent. You will be unable to speak till the day of your 18th birthday. All right, yeah. Would love to be able to do that. Okay, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, if I can see that clock. Does that say 1039? Time for glasses, maybe. We'll see. We're in the book of Luke, as I said. Uh, let's take it from the top. What's this talking about? First of all, what I want you to see is this. Is that Luke is trying to talk to this guy, Theophilus. And he, and he wants him to understand. He wants him to have certainty concerning the things which he has been taught. So he's bringing about this certainty through teaching him some background information to all of this. So he's like an investigative reporter, and he's trying to prove what he believes to be true to this guy, Theophilus. So when you're thinking about this passage, and this is difficult for me, a lot of times when I'm reading the book of Luke, I'm just reading it like, oh, this is where I get the Christmas story. This is where I you know, read about this, or this is where I read about that. But we really have to keep in mind the intent that Luke has, which is to convince Theophilus that what he's saying is true and that there's this background information. Now, what is this background information? Look at verse 5 again. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. So in, the, in this time, it was during this time period when this wicked king was in power. This also tells us that Israel is not in power. That Israel is in the midst of this evil regime. And this king is over them. So he's telling him about, this, uh, about what's happening here. And he's, he begins to go into the details of who Zechariah is. So Zechariah, he's a priest. He's of the division of Abijah. And his wife is, was also a descendant of Aaron. So both of them come from families that were priests. In, in Israel, they had, uh, they had the, the one family that, was, uh, pre, that were priests. And then that family was divided into 24 different divisions. And so here we have two people that are from the same descendants that have become married. They're both from uh, priests. So both of them were righteous in the sight of God. These were both really great people. I mean, they had done everything that they could do to be righteous in the sight of God, observing all of his uh, commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, does this mean that they were sinless? No. What it says is this, is that these two people did everything in the pow their power to live righteously. They did everything in their power to do what they were supposed to be doing on a regular basis. So they're in this evil kingdom. They are, he is a priest. They are a family, but they have no kids, it says. But they were childless in verse 7 uh, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. Does this story sound familiar? If you remember from the book of Genesis, you've got Abraham and, and, and Sarai, or Abram and Sarai, and, and so on, and other people. In fact, there's a, I've got a list of it. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samson, Samuel, 
And also here in this story, you have many, many people who did not, who could not have children, and then God blesses them and they can have children. Now, why does God do that? Well, perhaps it's because God wants it to be really important when they finally do have kids and he wants them to really know and understand that God is the one who's affected this. What we see from the very beginning here is this, is that God is the one who affects salvation. This is a salvation story. God is the one who begins it from the very beginning. Let's keep going here. Verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot. Now, why would he have to be chosen by lot? So casting lots or, you know, drawing straws, that, that type of a thing. Why would he have to be chosen that way? Well, there was one temple. There were 8,000 priests. There were uh, 24 divisions, I believe, and 300 priests per division. And so if you ever got to go and perform any kind of duty in the temple, much less this duty of burning the incense at the evening sacrifice or the morning sacrifice, they believe that this is the evening sacrifice where he's burning incense, it would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It would be like if uh, uh, Ryan... Uh, hey, big, our uh, worship slash executive pastor uh, were to only be able to lead worship once in his lifetime. That, that's kind of what this was like. It was a really, really big deal for this guy to be able to perform this duty at this time. And he happened to uh, receive the, uh, the, the responsibility for this by chosen by law, it says. And this is a custom that they did. And he goes in there. And he begins to burn the incense. And so there's all these assembled worshipers that are praying outside. So he's in behind this curtain and he's standing at this altar. And apparently there's a golden candlestick there. And so he's sitting there and he's doing this. Now, if you can imagine for a second, like, let's just say that this is the altar and the golden candlestick is right there. And so he's like, I mean, he's just being very, very methodical about this. Like, he's got to get the incense perfectly right. He's doing this once. He can't do this twice in his lifetime. He's doing this one time. He's got to get it right. So he's just being very careful. He's trying to savor every moment. He gets, he gets the incense. He, like, it, puts it together. He's, like, very careful. He can't drop the incense. You got you to keep it right there. And then all of a sudden, ah! You know, like, there's, the, there's this guy, like, standing there. What in the world? There's only supposed to be one guy back there. Like, who is this guy here? And, and this guy all of a sudden says, uh, well, he was startled and gripped with fear. The angel says, don't be afraid. And I, if I'm Zachariah, I'm going, why not? Like this is, what, what, what are you, who are you? What are you doing here? He just freaked out. Has that ever happened to you? Where you're like all of a sudden someone like comes up and like is sitting right here and you turn, ah, you know, turn your head. That's what happened. Now, I, I want to stop right there and just talk about this for just a second. I, I don't normally teach like this, I think, but I think what you really need to notice in this passage, because we want to explain the scriptures here, what you need to notice is the details of what is being told to you. The details are that this is the time, uh, during the time of the, the reign of Herod. It, it, it talks specifically about Zechariah and his wife, the fact that they couldn't, can't have kids, it talks about how he was chosen by Lot. Like, how did he get in there? If this was a fairy tale, I don't believe that we would have this level of information. But there are some very specific things that are going on there. 
then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side, at the right side of the altar of incense. It's not on the left side. It's not that he just appeared to him. He appeared at the right side of the altar. Think about the detail. Why does he include that? There doesn't seem to be any reason for it except for the fact that he wants this guy, Theophilus, and therefore us as well, to see this is true. I was told this, and I, I wrote it down specifically. Somebody else probably wrote it down. Somebody else talked to Zechariah. And so here's Zechariah. And so he says, uh, um, there, I mean, there's just all kinds of detail here. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now, what prayer? What prayer is he talking about? There's two possibilities here. He could have been praying most of his life for kids, as I'm sure that he was. Because not having kids in that day would have been a reproach. People would have looked down on you. In fact, it kind of refers to that a little bit. Elizabeth hid herself for five months because she didn't want to continue to be a reproach. Just wanted to come out and all of a sudden surprise everybody. Hey, I'm pregnant. That kind of thing. So it would have been a reproach. So he would have been praying about this. They would have been praying about this many, many, many years. It's also detrimental to an older couple who's, a, who's you know, in their later years. I mean, take like uh, Rob Mosier, for instance. He's here somewhere, isn't he? He's not. I mean, he used to be the oldest guy in the church. And, uh, you know, just about his age, maybe a little bit older, something like that. And so this guy's getting, he's getting up there. And so it would have been detrimental because he has no one to take care of him. And so he's been praying about this and praying about this. But there's also another possibility in that he has been praying for the consolation of Israel, which would have been this. It would have been that he is praying that, that God would send the Messiah and that the Messiah would save Israel from this evil regime and Herod. And so he's praying for both of those things at at some point or another, he may have been praying right there. They may, they may have been praying outside behind him for the very same thing. We're not sure, but the angel says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Okay, so it seems like the angel is saying, I'm going to give you a son because you've been praying for that. But the truth is, is that both of these things can go together. The consolation of Israel, the return of God to bring his Messiah and to save Israel and his son can be one and the same, which it is. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. Now we get happy about when, when somebody else has a, has a child. We enjoy that. We, we, we feel happy for somebody. We might take them some meals. We might say congrats or, you know, whatever on Facebook or something like that. Uh, it, something along those lines. But what this is saying, it's not just that some people are going to be uh, excited. It's not just that they're going to be sort of excited, that he's going to be a delight. And many, 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 many people are going to rejoice because of his birth. Why? For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. So he's going to be a great guy. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. 
Now, it sounds like this guy is going to be a Nazarite. So he's going to take a Nazarite vow, but he's taken a vow even before he's conceived. But what this means is that this guy's been set apart for a really special work. He has been set apart for a really special work, and for some reason, God wants him to be completely and totally without any type of drink or what have you, and he's going to fill him with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He's the only person that's been spoken of in this respect. Verse 16, he will bring back many of the people, to Israel, uh, people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, that was a mouthful, but what's this saying? Well, it's very important. So you see right here in the middle of verse 17, it says, he's going to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Why is that important? Well, because for ages, what, it, what has been believed, what's been told is this, is that Elijah is going to come first, and then the Messiah is going to follow. Elijah is going to come first. Now, first of all, let's talk about who Elijah is. Now, if you've, if you've read in the book of 1 Kings at all, you might have heard this story about Elijah, who's a great prophet, and he's been sent to Israel. Now, Israel has a horrible king named Ahab. Ahab is, a, is he, he, I was just reading it a little bit ago, it says he was worse than any other king that came before him. He led people to worship these false idols. He himself was worshiping false idols. There were 450 uh, prophets of, of Baal, and there was 400 uh, of these other prophets. And these people were throughout the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel is God's people, and they should be worshiping one God and serving one God. But instead, they're worshiping and serving these false gods. And so what does Elijah do? Elijah says, hey, Ahab. I want you to get all of your prophets of Baal together, and I want you to bring a couple cows, and we're going to do a couple sacrifices here. So he has them set up a, uh, you know, a, an altar. He says, cut up that thing however you want to do it, and then I want you to pray to your God, and I want you to call down uh, fire from heaven, and let's see who, which God does this. And so these 450 prophets of Baal, they dance around, they cut themselves, they do all kinds of ceremonies, but nothing happened. Nothing happened. And so Elijah is kind of bad to the bone a little bit. And so he, he kind of says this. Uh, maybe your God is going to the bathroom. Or maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he took a nap. I don't know. Let's, you know I, what happened to your God kind of a deal. He's kind of sitting there mocking them. And so they get done with their thing. It never works. So he sets up his altar, puts his cow on there. And then he says, all right, take some buckets of water and dump it on there. So they dump it on there. He digs a ditch around it. They dump the water on there. He says, dump another couple buckets on there. They dump some buckets on there. He says, do it one more time. They do it one more time. He prays. He says, God, I want you to show these people who is God. And so God does. The fire comes down from heaven and roasts this thing and licks up every bit of water. And this guy, Elijah, says, okay. So all the people of Israel are standing there and they say, oh, I guess God is God. I guess Yahweh is God. And he says, okay, bring all the prophets down to the, 
edge of the river down here. And he kills all of them. Now, this guy is like, I mean, he's like uh, Rambo, <laughs> Van Damme, Jason Bourne, all of them in one. Just bad to the bone, right? Elijah is supposed to precede the Messiah. Now, listen to that for just a second. When you think about John the Baptist, like John the Baptist is an important figure because John the Baptist is a figure and he's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. The same spirit of God that inhabited the life of Elijah is inhabiting the life of John the Baptist. And here's John the Baptist. He is preceding the Savior and he's coming to do an amazing work. Luke wants Theophilus, Theo, to know that this guy, John the Baptist, he's meaningful. He has been prophesied. In fact, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah was in a time period when everybody did whatever they wanted. They were not following Yahweh. And here is John the Baptist. He is coming into a time period where Zechariah and Elizabeth are very unique in their time. Because much of Israel has gone and done whatever they wanted. God's people are just, they're assimilating with the culture to a degree that God does not want. And so here is this Elijah figure who's coming in. And he is also going to do this amazing work. And he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. So John, the Baptist, is coming in, and what's he doing? Back to verse 16. He'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. John's going to come in, and he's going to clean house. And when you read what John says... And you really put it into context as to what he's actually saying. Calls him a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee? Who, who do you think you are kind of a deal? He's bringing about this repentance. He is a warning. But what is he doing? He is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And how is he preparing them? Well, the... You'll, you'll, in that Malachi passage and then also in this one, it talks about to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. There's this idea of like when everybody's doing whatever they want, the family is dislocated from what God had intended it to be. The family is dislodged from its moorings, because as people do whatever they want, the family falls apart. I don't need to give you any statistics or anything else to really show you and to prove to you that the American family today is falling apart. It is completely, completely falling apart as people continue to do whatever they want. 
And so what is this saying? It's saying these, these people have turned their heart away from God. And what John is going to do is that he's going to come in the spirit of Elijah and he's going to convict. He's going to prepare them. He's going to convict parents. He's going to convict fathers of their lack of love and attention for their family. He's going to convict, conv uh, convict mothers of whatever it is that they're doing. He's going to convict children of their disobedience. He's coming to the, the family, and not just to the family, but this is an example of how society gets torn apart. And this is saying this, this is saying that he is going to convict he is going to prepare the way of the Lord. My, I was telling my wife about this, and my wife said, that's so crazy because I just read a devotional this morning from John Piper on this very passage. And John Piper said this about this passage. He said, what John the Baptist did for Israel, Advent can do for us. He goes on to say, if you don't need a Savior, then you don't need Christmas. If you don't need a Savior, then you don't need Christmas. See, John the Baptist comes to Israel to prepare them for the Savior. Advent, which is the season of Christmas, comes to prepare us to rethink and to reimagine the reality that God sent His only Son to save us. But if you don't need a Savior, then you don't need Christmas. And that's our issue is that you and I may be even similar to Zechariah and Elizabeth, where we feel like we've done everything right. And so there's this sense in which I don't need a Savior. See, Christmas can't really mean anything to you as long as you feel like you've got everything buckled down. Every I dotted, every T crossed. And I've got to tell you this, that most of us sit in pride in believing that we do not need a Savior. So Christmas can't mean anything to us because the reality is, is I don't feel like I need a Savior. Christmas can't mean anything because I don't believe that I need anything from God. Is there, is, is there something beeping in this room right here? Is there, got it. Okay, awesome. Sorry, got distracted. We have a fire alarm uh, that keeps beeping on us right now. Don't worry, we're not on fire right now. So, Although I might ask for the fire to come down from heaven. If you guys don't listen, all right? Just be careful. Here we go. If you feel wet all of a sudden, run, all right? Um, sorry, that was just a reference to the last passage I was talking about. But Where was I? Oh, yes. If you don't need a Savior, then you don't need Christmas. John the Baptist came to prepare God's people to see the need for a Savior. He came to convict. He came to call out sin. Our anticipation can grow as we come to a realization of what our, our sin actually is. See, sometimes we knock out the big obvious sins and we never actually work on the stuff that isn't as obvious where people don't see us. The gossip, 
talking trash about people, being rude with our, our spouse or our kids, the lust that we have in our heart, the things that we desire, what we do with our money, how we're not really connected to God, so we're just becoming more and more like the culture. We never stop and think about the reality that we need a savior because we haven't been convicted of our sin. John the Baptist came to bring about a reality that says, you think that you're in the right place, but you are not in the right place. Advent is about this. It is about remembering that we need Jesus. It is about celebrating the reality that all of us are broken people. There's nobody in there. See, people get so shocked when they find out that somebody in a church had an affair or did something wrong or, or stole some money. It shouldn't be shocking to any of us here. We don't want that to happen. But the truth is that there is nobody in this church. There is no one. There is not one single person, even your pastor, who is not a broken individual. Every single one of us here needs a Savior. Every single one of us should be looking forward to the coming of the King in the form of a baby. And that's what John the Baptist was doing here. John the Baptist was here to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Are you prepared for the Lord? So Zach says this. How can I be sure of this? Verse 18. I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's interesting. Zach's been praying for many, many years to have a kid. There's no doubt about it. There's no other way that it could be. How, how he's been praying for years and years and years. And he says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is, is well along in years. And the angel says to him, look at the clarity of what Gabriel says. And think again that Luke is writing to Theophilus and he's writing specifically exactly what was said. He says, I am Gabriel. Who is Gabriel, first of all? Gabriel is an angel. He's also the angel that came to Daniel on the side of the river, Daniel 8 and 9. We taught on this some time ago. His conversation, uh, Daniel's conversation with Gabriel there is similar to this conversation. There's some tie-ins there that are really quite fascinating. We don't have time to go into it. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. He says, I'm an angel. I'm normally hanging out with God. One, I mean, I, I think Gabriel, if he just like took the gloves off, he'd be like, what in the world do you think is going on right now? I just quoted to you scripture. Zechariah, you should know this. You know that the Messiah is going to be preceded by this Elijah figure. I'm telling you that the kid that you're going to have is this Elijah figure. It, it can't be anybody else who's telling you this. I just appeared in the middle of your worship service. How can you not know that this is from God? 
I'm just going to reiterate it to you one more time. And guess what? You and I are very similar. You can go on and on, doing all kinds of great things for God. Feeling like you got everything wrapped up perfectly. Praying for this, praying for that. But then when the rubber meets the road, there really is unbelief there. There really is an uh, unbelief there. Like, you know the scriptures. You have all this Bible reading. You've done this. You've done that. And you don't believe. Or maybe you don't have any of that stuff. And you still don't believe. There's this unbelief that just stands in the sky that looks good. He's a priest for the love. He's in there all the time. He's at church constantly. He wants to be at church. He wants to be a part of the service. And yet... He still doesn't believe. And so Gabriel has to say, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to tell you this and to tell you this good news. Now, that's important because good news is the word for gospel, evangelion. It's the same word. Evangelion means good news, which also means gospel. Gospel means good news. Gabriel says, I've been sent to tell you this good news. And the good news is this, that you're going to have a kid that's going to prepare people for the Lord. My, or God's divine rescue plan has been enacted. It is officially started. It just began. And it's starting with you. And Gabriel's sitting here in unbelief. He says, and now you'll be silent. And not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words. Which will come true at their appointed time. Now it seems kind of aggressive. Like, hey, Gabriel, cut this guy some slack. He was, you know, just kind of sitting here trying to burn the incense. And you just kind of interrupted him. And like, don't you think that you could... You know, go ease up a little bit. Why do you got to be so heavy-handed here and not let the guy speak? Well, in some ways, it's the sign. Gabriel said, how, will, how can I be sure of this? And Gabriel's like, I'm sick of listening to this guy. Here's your sign. You know, <laughs> you, can't, you can't talk anymore. <laughs> how about that? That's a good sign, right? Yeah. <laughs> says, because you didn't believe my words. It seems heavy-handed a little bit. and In some ways, it's not, because like I said, it, it is a sign. But in other ways, it's, it's not just that he was, it's not just that he was kind of like, are you sure? You know, it was, it was more just flat-out unbelief. Just flat-out unbelief. Like, he didn't believe that God could do this. He didn't believe that God could, could make this happen. Isn't it interesting? Like, that's the, what, what, what is said about Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zach and Liz, is, is, is one of the most profound statements about somebody's personal righteousness in the scriptures. In fact, people who believe that you can be completely righteous point to this incorrectly and say, see, you can be righteous apart from Jesus. Even though there's other scriptures that say there's no one righteous, not even one, all that stuff, right? 
But it's still pretty stinking important that it says in verse 6, both of them are righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Like you can be totally in, in the in crowd, in the community group, a part of the church, serving regularly, doing all the right things, checking all the right boxes. And yet, you can just exist in unbelief. You can exist in unbelief. And, and it's crazy because God shows up. God, I should say God sends his angel to show up, to speak for God. And yet he still doesn't believe. See, here's the problem. There's nobody in this room that has the ability to believe God on our own. You can know all the scriptures, you can know all the prophecies that this has to happen, and yet you and I would still be sitting there just going, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I don't know that that would take place. We would still be sitting in unbelief if it weren't for God. Why is that? Well, it's because of this. It absolutely takes God's unilateral decision to prepare us for salvation. You and I can't prepare ourselves. Zechariah and Liz did everything in the book right. And yet, as they're staring salvation in the face, as they're staring this prophecy in the face, they can't seem to believe it. What does God do here? God says, this is happening. He said it not just 400 years ago, but thousands of year prior, years prior to this. But then 400 years before, Malachi uh, chapter, five, or chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. I'm sending, this, I'm sending this guy. And here he is. God has determined that it's going to happen way before time began. God says it's going to happen at this point, And it's happening right now. And guess who's not going to stand in the way? Zag and Liz. Regardless of how unbelieving they are. And guess what? You're not going to stand in the way of God saving you. See, if you came in this morning and you said... I don't know that I'm worth saving. I don't know that I have what it takes to be saved. The truth is, is that you're already halfway prepared for the Lord. Because that's completely true. You and I, in our natural selves, are not worth saving. We don't have what it takes. We don't have the abilities. We don't have the skills. We don't have the abilities or the skills to even recognize it when it's staring us in the face. There's another story about this guy named Nicodemus who is also a really religious guy. And he's like, how do I get saved? And Jesus says, like, it's got to happen by the power of the Spirit. And he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And Jesus is like, man, you know all the law and all the prophets. And you don't know what it takes to be saved? And he's like, no, I don't. And Jesus basically explains to him, you can't do it. You can't make it happen. But some of us are in this room who believe that we did make it happen. Some of us are in this room and we believe that somehow we've affected salvation, that we've, that we've carried it out. But here's the thing. What has to happen first? 
is that your heart must be prepared. And God does that through conviction. He used John the Baptist in, in, in this respect. And he used the, uses the power of the Holy Spirit to convict us. Where have you walked away from God? Are you fervently going after him? Is there any passion in, in your life? Is there any passion in your heart for him? Do you have any desire to see people come to know Jesus? Do you have any desire to serve others? Let's talk about your finances for a second. Where are you at with your finances? Is it really difficult for you to tithe? Is it really difficult for you to be generous? It's an indication that you, you do not have a walk with Jesus on the level that God would call you to have. And it's because of this. You don't see a need for a Savior because you don't even see your sin. But Jesus goes to the cross. He comes as a baby, yes. He leaves glory. He leaves all of the honor that he had there, all of the respect, all of the comfort, all of that. He leaves that and he comes to earth. He walks with us. He walks with us and he becomes like humanity. And he goes to the cross and he's so serious about the reality that you and I have sin, that he says, I, I am willing to die for this. Jesus is willing to die for you, and he did die for you. It's already taken place. It's already happened. So what does it take? What, it, it takes this. Trust in the reality that I'm a, I am unable to save myself. I'm unable to do what's right. I'm unable to effectively save myself. And I must have some kind of outside force because I'm like Zach and Liz. Like, I don't know that I can believe this, but I need God to save me. I need God to be the one that acts in my life. Just like God is acting in history to bring about his salvation in spite of people who remain in unbelief. That's what you must pray. Lord, I want to believe this. I want to believe. I want to trust you as my Savior. I want to trust that Jesus is the one who went to the cross for me and died for me. Help me believe this. Help me walk in this truth. Many of us in this room are walking in a sort of lackadaisical ease. It's just kind of like, yeah, it's my Christian life. It's what I do. But God has so much more for you. He wants your heart to be prepared. He wants you to turn away from the culture and turn back to him. He wants you to be somebody who is plugged into your family or into your community in a way that's loving where you're leading others and being led. And he does that with the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I ask for your conviction so that we can be prepared. 
to even see our need for your coming. Lord, I'm praying that we would spend this Christmas season just contemplating all the ways that we need you, all the ways that we need you, Lord, to walk in repentance, walk in repentance, and just be thankful for the fact that you did come. Lord, I'm, I'm praying that during this time that, you, that we would be people who are walking in repentance and rejoicing knowing that you did come and that we're anticipating your coming again. We thank you for this. It's in your name we pray. Amen.